Section 8 of Adventures of a New Year's Eve, Parts 1 through 4, by Heinrich Schock, from Tales by Heinrich Schock, translated by Park Godwin. Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Jones. Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 1, by Various. Section 8. Mother Kate, the watchman's wife, at nine o'clock on New Year's Eve, opened her little window and put her head out into the night air. The snow was reddened by the light from the window as it fell in silent, heavy flakes upon the street. She observed the crowds of happy people, hurrying to and fro from the brilliantly lighted shops with presents, were pouring out of the various inns and coffee-houses, and going to the dances and other entertainments, with which the New Year's married to the old enjoying pleasure. But when a few cold flakes had lighted on her nose, she drew back her head, closed the window, and said to her husband, Gottlieb, stay at home, and let Philip watch for thee to-night, for the snow comes as fast as it can from heaven, and thou knowest the cold does thy old bones no good. The streets will be gay to-night, there seems dancing and feasting in every house, masqueraders are going about, and Philip will enjoy the sport. Old Gottlieb nodded his assent. I am willing, Kate, he said. My barometer, the old wound above my knee, has given me a warning the last two days of a change of weather. It is only right that my son should aid me in a service to which he will be my successor. We must give the reader to understand that old Gottlieb had been a sergeant of cavalry in one of the king's regiments, until he was made a cripple for life by a musket-ball, as he was the first mounting the walls of a hostile fort in a battle for his fatherland. The officer who commanded the attack received the cross of honor on the battlefield for his heroism, and was advanced in the service while Gottlieb was fain to creep homewards on a pair of crutches. From pity they made him a schoolmaster, for he was intelligent, liked to read, and wrote a good hand. But when the school increased, they took it away from him to provide for a young man who could do none of these as well as he, merely because he was a godson of one of the trustees. However, they promoted Gottlieb to the post of watchman, with a reversion of it to his son Philip, who had in the meantime bound himself to a gardener. It was only the good housewifery of Miss Catherine and the extreme moderation of old Gottlieb that enabled them to live happily on the little they possessed. Philip gave his services to the gardener for his board and lodging, but occasionally received very fine presents when he carried home flowers to the rich people of the town. He was a fresh, handsome young fellow, of six-and-twenty. Noble ladies often gave him sundry extra dollars for his fine looks, a thing they would never have thought of doing for an ugly face. Mrs. Kate had already put on her cloak to go to the gardener's house to fetch her son when he entered the apartment. Father, said Philip, giving a hand to both father and mother, it's snowing, and the snow won't do you much good. I'll take the watch tonight, and you can get to bed. You're a good boy, said old Gottlieb. And then I've been thinking, continued Philip, that as tomorrow's New Year's Day, I may come and dine with you and make myself happy. Mother, perhaps has no joint in the kitchen, and... No, interrupted the mother, we've no joint but then we have a pound and a half of venison, with potatoes for relish and a little rice and laurel leaves for a soup, and two flasks of beer to drink. Only come, Philip, for we shall live finely tomorrow. <laughs> Next week we may do better, for the New Year's gifts will be coming in, and Gottlieb's share will be something. Oh, we shall live grandly. Well, so much the better, dear mother, said Philip. But have you paid the rent of the cottage yet? Old Gottlieb shrugged his shoulders. Philip laid a purse on the table. There are two and twenty dollars that I have saved. I can do very well without them. Take them for a New Year's gift, and then we can all three enter on the New Year without a debt or a care. God grant that we may end it in health and happiness. Heaven in its goodness will provide for both you and me. 
tears came into mother catherine's eyes as she kissed her son old gottlieb said philip you are a prop and stay of our old age continue to be honest and good and to love your parents so will a blessing rest on you i can give you nothing for a new year's gift but a prayer that you may keep your heart pure and true this is in your power you will be rich enough for a clear conscience is a heaven in itself so said old gottlieb and then he wrote down in an account book the sum of two and twenty dollars that his son had given him all that you have cost me in childhood is now nearly paid up your savings amount to three hundred and seventeen dollars which i have received three hundred and seventeen dollars cried mistress catherine in the greatest amazement and then turning to philip with a voice full of tenderness ah philip she said thou grievest me child of my heart yes indeed thou dost had thou saved that money for thyself thou might have bought some land with it and started as gardener on thy own account and married rose now that is impossible but take comfort philip we are old and thou wilt not have to support us long mother exclaimed philip and he frowned a little what are you thinking of roses dear to me as life but i would give up a hundred roses rather than desert you and my father i should never find any other parents in this world but you and there are plenty of roses although i would have none but mrs bittner's rose were there even ten thousand others you are right philip said gottlieb loving and marrying are not in the commandments but to honor your father and mother is a duty and a commandment to give up strong passions and inclinations for the happiness of your parents is the truest gratitude of a son it will gain you the blessing from above it will make you rich in your own heart if it were only not too long for rose to wait said miss catherine or if you could give up the engagement altogether for rose is a pretty girl that can't be denied and though she is poor there will be no want of wooers she is virtuous and understands housekeeping never fear mother replied philip rose is solemnly sworn to marry no man but me and that is sufficient her mother has nothing to object to me and if i was in business and had money enough to keep a wife with rose would be my wife to-morrow the only annoyance we have is that her mother will not let us meet so often as we wish she says frequent meetings do no good but i differ from her and so does rose for we think that meeting often does us both a great deal of good and we have agreed to meet to-night at twelve o'clock at the great door of st gregory's church for rose is bringing in the year at a friend's house and i am to take her home in the midst of such conversation the clock of the neighboring tower struck three quarters and philip took his father's greatcoat from the warm stove where catherine had carefully laid it wrapped himself in it and taking the lantern and staff and wishing his parents good night proceeded to his post part two philip stalked majestically through the snow-covered streets of the capital where as many people were still visible as in the middle of the day carriages were rattling in all directions and the houses were all brilliantly lighted our watchman enjoyed the scene he sang his verses at ten o'clock and blew his horn lustily in the neighborhood of st gregory's church with many a thought on rose who was then with her friend now she hears me he said to himself now she thinks on me and forgets the scene around her i hope she won't fail me at twelve o'clock at the church door and when he had gone his round he always returned to the dear house and looked at the lighted windows sometimes he saw female figures and his heart beat quick at the sight sometimes he fancied he saw rose herself and sometimes he studied the long shadows thrown on the wall or the ceiling to discover which of them was roses and to fancy what she was doing it was certainly not a very pleasant employment to stand in frost and snow and look up at a window but what care lovers for frost and snow and watchmen were as fiery and romantic lovers as ever were the knights of ancient ballads he only felt the effects of the frost when at eleven o'clock he had to set out upon his round his teeth were chattering with cold he could scarcely call the hour or sound his horn he would have willingly have gone into a beer-house to warm himself at the fire 
As he was pacing through a lonely by-street, he met a man with a black half-mask on his face, enveloped in a fire-colored silken mantle, and wearing on his head a magnificent hat turned up at one side and fantastically ornamented with a number of high and waving plumes. Philip endeavored to escape the mask, but in vain. The stranger blocked up his path and said, Ha! Thou art a fine fellow. I like thy fizz amazingly. Where are you going, eh? I say, where are you going? To Mary Street, replied Philip. I'm going to call the hour there. Enchanting, answered the mask. I'll hear thee. I'll go with thee. Come along, thou foolish fellow, and let me hear thee. And mind'st thou singest well, for I'm a good judge. Canst thou sing me a jovial song? Philip saw that his companion was of high rank and a little tipsy, and answered, I sing better over a glass of wine in a warm room than when up to my waist in snow. They had now reached Mary Street, and Philip sang and blew the horn. Ha! That's but a poor performance, exclaimed the mask who had accompanied him thither. Give me the horn, and I shall blow so well that you'll half die with delight. Philip yielded to the mask's wishes, and let him sing the verses and blow. For four or five times all was done as if the stranger had been a watchman all his life. He dilated most eloquently on the joys of such an occupation, and was so inexhaustible in his own praises that he made Philip laugh at his extravagance. His spirits evidently owed no small share of their elevation to an extra glass of wine. "'I'll tell you what, my treasure. I've a great fancy to be a watchman myself for an hour or two. If I don't do it, I never shall arrive at that hour in the course of my life. Give me your great coat and wide-brimmed hat, and take my domino. Go into a beer-house and take a bottle at my expense, and when you have finished it, come again and give me back my masking gear. You shall have a couple of dollars for your trouble. What do you think, my treasure?' But Philip did not like this arrangement. At last, however, at the solicitations of the mask, he capitulated and they entered a dark lane. Philip was half frozen. A warm drink would do him good, and so would a warm fire. He agreed for one half hour to give up his watchmanship, which would be until twelve o'clock. Exactly at that time the stranger was to come to the great door of St. Gregory's and give back the great coat, horn, and staff, taking back his own silk mantle, hat, and domino. Philip also told him the four streets in which he was to call the hour. The mask was in raptures. Treasure of my heart! I could kiss thee if thou wert not a dirty, miserable fellow. But thou shalt have naught to regret, if thou art at the church at twelve, for I will give thee money for a supper then. Joy! I am a watchman! The mask looked a watchman to the life, while Philip was completely disguised with a half-mask tied over his face, the bonnet ornamented with a buckle of brilliance on his head, and the red silk mantle thrown around him. When he saw his companion commence his walk, he began to fear that the young gentleman might compromise the dignity of the watchman. He therefore addressed him once more and said, I hope you will not abuse my good nature and do any mischief or misbehave in any way, as it may cost me the situation. Hello, answered the stranger. What are you talking about? Don't you think I know my duty? Off with you this moment, or I'll let you feel the weight of my staff. But come to St. Gregory's Church and give me back my clothes at twelve o'clock. Goodbye. This is glorious fun. The new guardian of the streets walked onward with all the dignity becoming his office, while Philip hurried to neighboring tavern. Part three. As he was passing the door of the royal palace, he was laid hold of by a person in the mask who had alighted from a carriage. Philip turned round, and in a low whispering voice asked what the stranger wanted. My gracious lord, answered the mask, in your reverie you have passed the door, will your royal highness. What, royal highness? said laughing. I'm no highness. What put that into your head? The mask bowed respectfully, and pointed to the brilliant buckle in Philip's hat. I ask your pardon if I have betrayed your disguise. But, in whatever character you assume, your noble bearing will betray you. Will you condescend to lead the way? 
Does your highness intend to dance? I, to dance, replied Philip. No, you see, I have my boots on. To play, then, inquired the mask. Still less, I have brought no money with me, said the assistant watchman. Good heaven, exclaimed the mask. Command my purse. All that I possess is at your service. Saying this, he forced a full purse into Philip's hand. But do you know who I am? inquired Philip, and rejected the purse. The mask whispered with a bow of profound obeisance, His Royal Highness, Prince Julian. At this moment Philip heard his deputy in an adjoining street calling the hour very distinctly, and he now became aware of his metamorphosis. Prince Julian, who was well known in the capital as an amiable, wild, and good-hearted young man, had been the person with whom he had changed his clothes. Now then, thought Philip, as he enacts the watchman so well, I will not shame his rank. I'll see if, for one half-hour, I can't be the prince. If I make any mistake, he is himself to blame for it. He wrapped this red silken mantle closer round him, took the offered purse, put it in his pocket, and said, Who are you, Mask? I will return your gold tomorrow. I am the Chamberlain Pizau. Good. Lead the way. I'll follow. The Chamberlain obeyed, and tripped up the marble stairs, Philip coming close up behind him. They entered an immense hall lighted by a thousand tapers and dazzling chandeliers, which were reflected by brilliant mirrors. A confused crowd of maskers jostled each other, sultans, Tyrolese, harlequins, knights in armors, nuns, goddesses, satyrs, monks, Jews, Medes, and Persians. Philip for a while was abashed and blinded, such splendor he had never dreamt of. In the middle of the hall the dance was carried on with hundreds of people to the music of a full band. Philip, whom the heat of the apartment recovered from his frozen state, was so bewildered with the scene that he could scarcely nod his head as different masks addressed him, some confidentially, others deferentially. "'Will you go to the hazard table?' answered the chamberlain, who stood beside him, and who Philip now saw dressed as a brahim. "'Let me get thawed first, answered Philip. I am an icicle at present.' "'A glass of warm punch,' inquired the brahim, and led him into the refreshment room. The pseudo-prince did not wait for a second invitation, but emptied one glass after another in a short time. The punch was good, and it spread its genial warmth through Philip's veins. "'How's it that you don't dance tonight, Brahim?' he asked of his companion, when they returned into the hall. The Brahim sighed and shrugged his shoulders. "'I have no pleasure in the dance. Gaiety is distasteful to me. The only person I care to dance with, the Countess Benau. I thought she loved me. Our families offered no objection. But all at once she broke with me.' His voice trembled as he spoke. "'How?' said Philip. "'I never heard of such a thing.' "'You never heard of it,' replied the other. "'The whole city rings with it. "'The quarrel happened a fortnight ago, "'and she will not allow me to justify myself, "'but has sent back three letters I wrote to her, unopened. "'She is a declared enemy of the Baroness Reisenthal, "'and has made me promise to drop her acquaintance. "'But think how unfortunate I was. "'When the Queen Mother made the hunting party to Freudenwald, "'she appointed me cavalier to the Baroness. "'What could I do? "'It was impossible to refuse. "'On the very birthday of the adorable Bonneau, "'I was obliged to set out. "'She heard of it.' She put no trust in my heart. Well then, Brahmin, take advantage of the present moment. The new year makes up all quarrels. Is the countess here? Do you not see her over there? The Carmelite on the left of the third pillar beside the two black dominoes. She has laid aside her mask. Ah, prince, your intercession would... Philip thought, now I can do good work. And as the punch had inspired him, he walked directly to the Carmelite. The countess Benau looked at him for some time seriously, and with flushed cheeks, as he sat down beside her. She was a beautiful girl, yet Philip remained persuaded that Rose was a thousand times more beautiful. Countess, he said, and became embarrassed when he met her clear bright eye fixed upon him. Prince, said the Countess, an hour ago you were somewhat too bold. 
fair countess i am therefore at this present moment the more quiet so much the better i shall not then be obliged to keep you out of your way fair lady allow me to ask one question have you put on a nun's gown to do penance for your sins i have nothing to do penance for but you have countess your cruelties your injustice to the poor brahim yonder who seems neglected by his god and all the world the beautiful carmelite cast down her eyes and appeared uneasy and do you know fair countess that in the freudenwald affair the chamberlain is as innocent as i am as you prince said the countess frowning what did you tell me an hour ago you are right dear countess i was too bold you said so yourself but now i declare to you that the chamberlain was obliged to go to freudenwald by command of the queen mother against his will was obliged to be a cavalier to the hated reisenthal hated by him <laughs> interrupted the countess with a bitter and sneering laugh yes he hates he despises the baroness believe me he scarcely treated her with civility and incurred the royal displeasure by so doing i know it and it was for your sake you are the only person he loves to you he offers his hand his heart and you you reject him how comes it prince that you intercede so warmly for plazao you did not do so formally that was because i did not know him and still less the sad state into which you had thrown him by your behavior i swear to you he is innocent you have nothing to forgive him he has much to forgive in you hush whispered the carmelite we are watched here away from this she replaced her mask stood up and placing her arm within that of the supposed prince they crossed the hall and entered a side room the countess uttered many bitter complaints against the chamberlain but they were the complaints of jealous love the countess was in tears when the tender brahim soon after came timidly into the apartment there was a deep silence among the three philip not knowing how to conclude his intercession better led the brahim to the carmelite and joined their hands together without saying a word and left them to fate he himself returned into the hall part four here he was hastily addressed by a mameluke i'm glad to have met you domino is the rose girl in the side room the mameluke rushed into it but returned in a moment evidently disappointed one word alone with you domino he said and led philip into a window recess in a retired part of the hall what do you want asked philip i beseech you replied the mameluke in a subdued yet terrible voice where is the rose girl what is the rose girl to me but to me she is everything answered the mameluke whose suppressed voice and agitated demeanor showed what a fearful struggle was going on within to me she is everything she is my wife you make me wretched prince i conjure you drive me not to madness think of my wife no more with all my heart answered philip dryly what have i to do with your wife oh prince prince exclaimed the mameluke i have made a resolve which i shall execute if it cost me my life do not seek to deceive me a moment longer i have discovered everything here look at this tis a note my false wife slipped into your hand and which you dropped in the crowd without having read philip took the note twas written in pencil and in the fine delicate hand change your mask everybody knows you my husband watches you he does not know me if you obey me i will reward you hem muttered philip as i live this was not written to me i don't trouble my head about your wife death and fury prince do not drive me mad do you not know who it is that speaks to you i am the marshal blakensford your advances to my wife are not unknown to me ever since the last rout at the palace my lord marshal answered philip excuse me for saying that jealousy has blinded you if you knew me well you would not think of accusing me of such folly i give you my word of honor i will never trouble your wife are you in earnest prince entirely give me proof of this whatever you would require 
I know that you have hindered her until now from going with me to visit her relations in Poland. Will you persuade her to do so now? With all my heart, if you desire it. Yes, yes, and your royal highness will prevent inconceivable and unavoidable misery. The Mameluke continued for some time, sometimes begging and praying, and sometimes threatening so furiously that Philip feared he might make a scene before the whole assembly that would not have suited him precisely. He therefore quitted him as soon as possible. Scarcely had he lost himself in the crowd, when a female, closely wrapped in deep mourning, tapped him familiarly on the arm, and whispered, "'Butterfly, whither away? Have you no pity for the disconsolate widow?' Philip answered very politely, "'Beautiful widows find no lack of comforters. May I venture to include myself among them?' "'Why are you so disobedient, and why have you not changed your mask?' said the widow, while she led him aside that they might speak more freely. Do you really fancy, Prince, that everyone here does not know who you are? They are very much mistaken in me, I assure you, replied Philip. No, indeed, answered the widow. They know you very well, and if you do not immediately change your apparel, I shall not speak to you again the whole evening. I have no desire to give my husband an opportunity of making a scene. By this Philip discovered whom he was talking with. You were the beautiful rose girl. Are your roses withered so soon? What is there that does not wither? not the constancy of man. I saw you when you slipped off with the Carmelite. Acknowledge your inconstancy. You can deny it no longer. Hem, answered Philip dryly. Accuse me if you will. I can return the accusation. How, pretty butterfly? Why, for instance, there is not a more constant man alive than the marshal. There is not indeed. And I am wrong, very wrong, to have listened to you so long. I have reproached myself enough, but he has unfortunately discovered our flirtation. Since the last rout at court, fair widow, were you so unguarded and particular, pretty butterfly? Let us repair the mischief. Let us part. I honor the marshal, and, for my part, do not like to give him pain. The widow looked at him, for some time, in speechless amazement. If you have indeed any regard for me, continued Philip, you will go with the marshal to Poland to visit your relations. Tis better that we should not meet so often. A beautiful woman is beautiful, but a pure and virtuous woman is more beautiful still. Prince, cried the astonished widow, are you really in earnest? Have you ever loved me, or have you all along deceived? Look you, answered Philip, I am a tempter of a peculiar kind. I search constantly among women to find truth and virtue, and tis but seldom that I encounter them. Only the true and virtuous can keep me constant. Therefore I am true to none. But no, I will not lie. There is one that keeps me in her chains. I am sorry, fair widow. The one is not you. You are in a strange mood tonight, prince, answered the widow and the trembling of her voice and heaving of her bosom showed the working of her mind. No, answered Philip, I am in as rational a mood tonight as I ever was in my life. I wish only to repair an injury. I have promised to your husband to do so. How, exclaimed the widow in a voice of terror, you have discovered all to the marshal. Not everything, answered Philip, only what I knew. The widow wrung her hands in the extremity of agitation, and at last said, Where is my husband? Philip pointed to the Mameluke, who at this moment approached them with slow steps. "'Prince,' said the widow in a tone of inexpressible rage, "'Prince, you may be forgiven this, but not from me. I never dreamt that the heart of man could be so deceitful. But you are unworthy of a thought. You are an impostor. My husband in the dress of a barbarian is a prince. You in the dress of a prince are a barbarian. In this world you see me no more.' With these words, she turned proudly away from him, and going up to the Mameluke, they left the hall in deep and earnest conversation. Philip laughed quietly and said to himself, My substitute, the watchman, must look to it, for I do not play my part badly. 
I only hope that when he returns you will proceed as I have begun. He went up to the dancers, and was delighted to see the beautiful Carmelite standing up in a set with the overjoyed Brahim. No sooner did the latter perceive him than he kissed his hand to him, and in dumb show gave him to understand in what a blessed state he was. Philip thought, "'Tis a pity I'm not to be prince in all my lifetime. The people would be satisfied then. To be the prince is the easiest thing in the world. He can do more with a single word than a lawyer with a four-hour speech. Yes, if I were prince, my beautiful rose would be lost to me forever. No, I would not be a prince. He now looked at the clock, and saw it was half-past eleven. The Mameluke hurried up to him and gave him a paper. Prince, he exclaimed, I could fall at your feet and thank you in the very dust. I am reconciled to my wife. You have broken her heart, but it is better that it should be so. We leave for Poland this very night, and there we shall fix our home. Farewell. I shall be ready whenever your royal highness requires me to pour out my last drop of blood in your service. My gratitude is eternal. Farewell. Stay, said Philip to the marshal, who was hurrying away. What am I to do with this paper? Oh, that tis the amount of my loss to your highness last week at hazard. I had nearly forgotten it, but before my departure I must clear my debts. I have endorsed it on the back. With these words the marshal disappeared. End of section 8, parts 1 through 4 of Adventures of a New Year's Eve.